last week as we kicked off this uh, book of Judges, and I think for many of us, we haven't done a study in the book of Judges. Uh, we've heard some of those stories about Samson or maybe Gideon, or we've heard of those uh, names, but we looked at essentially how the book of Judges is positioned in this unique time uh, where Joshua has been handed the baton from Moses to lead the people. He's taken them into the promised land uh, and been very successful. And then after Joshua dies, there's this period of time uh, and it's a period of time uh, where there's no king yet. Uh, and then also there's no defined like leader. He doesn't really pass that baton on to the next leader. And so uh, the 12 tribes go to the Lord after the death of Joshua and they still have to take, uh, they have to occupy the rest of the promised land. And there's still uh, people groups there that they're called to drive out. And, and so they go to the Lord and they ask the Lord uh, what they're to do. And, and so the Lord gives them direction as they go in to settle the land, into the land and push out those uh, remaining people groups who are in opposition to God, uh, who are caught up in idolatry and evil and wicked practices within that. And so uh, they go to the Lord and, and he tells them what to do. And we see as they start having success, uh, the 12 tribes, we see them begin to compromise and they start to partially obey, ultimately ending where they start to intermingle, live alongside the very people group they're to push out. Um, they enslave some of those people and they were never supposed to do that. And, and so they start to operate in this uh, space of convenience and neglect the ultimate calling of the Lord. And at the very end last week, we talked about how God addresses that and, and says there's gonna be consequences for that. Those people and their idolatry is going to ensnare you. And the people respond by just weeping before the Lord. Uh, and, and, and so that's where we were at today. Uh, let's continue on uh, in chapter two, verse six. And before, uh, before I read this, I think one of the challenges for us is, is remember, when we look at the Old Testament, it is incredible how much, I'll just call it pride, that is in us by how we look at the Old Testament. What I mean by that is when we look at the Old Testament in particular, uh, we read stories, situations, and we read about these primitive people and we go, man, I would never be like that. I would never have done that. I wouldn't have been a part of that group. I wouldn't have followed that leader. I would have been different because I am educated and I know how to really follow God. Right? And, and we totally negate that we have been given the completed work uh, the words of God, like we, we have the Bible. And, and so here we are sitting in this, this point in time where they didn't, they didn't, Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet as far as, uh, you know, dying on the cross. And, and so they're at this, this critical juncture, this time and space. And, and we have this tendency to look at that and to judge them and go, well, we wouldn't be like that. And so Old Testament, let's keep it in the old. Let's operate and live in the new. And yet though, like I was thinking about this, uh, like, what are people going to say about our generation? Like 50 years from now, 100 years from now, I know. I was like, man, they are going to describe us as the most confused people ever. I mean, we're so confused, the NFL cannot define what a catch is. Like, that's how confused we are 
as a whole. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And, and, and so uh, we, but man, for whatever reason, there's pride that cre- creeps in when we look at these people and go, oh, I wouldn't have done that and that. And so we have to see how there's actually um, a benefit to our lives when we read the Old Testament and we understand and know that the situations that they're navigating are very, very similar and identical in a lot of ways to what we're navigating. And their issues are the same as ours. In fact, we read how everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Boy, does that sum us up, doesn't it? And so let's, let's engage with this. In chapter two, uh, verse six, and, and we're gonna read quite a bit here. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation, all that were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress, it says. Okay, so the writer uh, begins this section uh, by reviewing the end of Joshua's life. So he, so he takes us back uh, to the end of Joshua's life uh, to give us a picture of where the people were at at that time. Uh, the, it says that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetimes of Joshua and his elders, right? Uh, the time of Joshua and, and, and his established leaders who lived, who actually outlived him. This was a generation, it describes, who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. They were ones that had witnessed uh, the miracles uh, that, G, that God had done in order to bring them into the promised land. And so it it highlights that's where the people were uh, at in this generation. But Joshua had warned these very people towards the end of his life, actually. He he, he challenges them in Joshua 24, and and, and he goes into this almost like a sermon saying, you need to choose who you're going to serve moving forward. You need to decide. And he he actually says this in Joshua 24, 19, and he's Continuing in that theme, it says, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves 
that you had chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, you need to choose. You need to make him a priority and you're gonna have to do away with those other things. And they are gonna be all around us as we move forward. And it's gonna outlive me. And then we get to verse 10, right? And we read those words and there arose another generation after them says, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How sad is that? Guys, this is one generation later. And, and it says they had no personal relationship with God. See, uh, God's saving work all throughout their history was no longer at the center of their heart and their mind, was it? I, I, I mean, all of those miracles that God did on behalf of Israel, taking them out of slavery in Egypt, and it's no longer conversation. It's no longer being talked about uh, at home. It's no longer uh, something that, that people are going to the Lord with in thankfulness as a reminder of, of how uh, powerful he is, how his plans will not be thwarted, how, how they will succeed in all this. That was no longer on their hearts and their minds. They had just simply forgot. And when you see a whole generation turn away, um, you, you know, there's, there's always, you can do everything right by the book and raising your family or even being a leader. Uh, and, and there's going to be people that just turn away, right? We even see in, in uh, Jesus is 12, right? You have Judas. And so we know that's a real thing. But when you see an entire generation turn away, I'll tell you what, there is a failure in the parents, isn't there? Like, there's no way around it. There is a failure in the parents and there is a failure in the spiritual leadership within the nation of Israel. They had not modeled what real faith was and they had not discipled their children for that next generation. And what's the result? It says the people turn against the Lord. The people rebel against the Lord and they decide to be like the people in the land, worshiping their gods. It says the Baals. And Baal was, uh, that, that word just me in, in the Canaanite language was, was it's, it's a word for Lord. And, and essentially he was the rain and fertility God. Uh, but, but they had all of these other Baals, these other Lords, this idolatry was just rampant. And, and, and what we really see is, is honestly the, 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 the process that happens where you get to compromise. See, there's commitment, right? There's, there's this moment of commitment. Uh, you're established, you're excited, you're committed to the cause. But then all of a sudden, what happens? Complacency, right? There's moments of complacency that happen. And then what happens out of that complacency? There starts to be little compromises, doesn't there? I'm too tired. It was too busy. There's too much going on. And then all of a sudden, these compromises become more frequent. And we see this is what happened. This is the spiraling nature of the people of Israel. And, and, and so as this happens within a generation, we need to know that Deuteronomy chapter six was written to avoid this. 
Like when you read uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, and we're gonna look at it here uh, in a minute, but when you read specifically verses four through nine and 20 through 25, it literally tells us how we're to pass on our faith to our kids and to the next uh, generation. And that was written, in fact, it's called the Shema. That, that was written so that the people were to repeat that, to recite that every day. Every day that was to be a prominent fixture in their homes. And yet they'd stopped doing it, right? It was no longer a thing that they did. And so, but, but it tells us that it literally was written to help ensure that the faith that the parents had, that, that, that the virtues of the gospel and following Jesus, that that would be reproduced and then given to the next generation. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4, it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then later in verse 20, it continues to drive home how we do this. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. See, see, it tells us what were to pass uh, on. And, and once again, this isn't just for you parents uh, in the room. This is for any of you that are looking to reproduce uh, your faith to help impact, reach, and disciple the next generation. And first and foremost in verse four or verse five, actually, it, it starts and, and it says, this has to be established first and foremost, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay. So if I am going to pass on the torch, if I am going to reproduce the gospel in my kids, if I am going to disciple them, uh, if I'm going to have an impact on the next generation, I have to first and foremost love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul. So here's where it starts. It starts with me. As a parent, right? I have to make that decision first. I, I, I have to, and, and when it says loving God wholeheartedly, it means these commandments are written in my heart. In other words, it is genuine. 
It is genuine. It's, it's not just I talk about God. It's not just I encourage them to do the same. It's not just we go to church. No, it, it, it's the cry of my heart. It is, it is genuine that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, and strength. And that is the first and foremost command that I, as a parent who desperately wants my kids to love God, I have to start with that. I have to start with me. And so, and so literally, they're to repeat this every day. And so every day, you're to be reminded uh, every day that, that, wait, where am I at? Where am I at as a parent, as a, a, a leader? Um, it, it is, is the message that I'm delivering, is it hypocritical? Is it inconsistent with what's going on in my heart? And you guys, you want to throw away your witness? <laughs> be a hypocrite. Be inconsistent. Our kids pick up on that so quickly. And so what, what we see here is we're to apply the gospel and refre- reflect it practically. And this is not just this academic thing, okay? In fact, uh, in, in verse seven, uh, you, you can see like it, it's, it's definitely not promoting these regular family lectures. In other words, it's not like me coming home and saying, all right, guys, Everybody position yourselves in front of your dad. I've got something to say. You listen up. That's not what it's talking about. In fact, look at it. Well, have it go back on the screen here. Look what verse seven says of Deuteronomy six. It says, you shall teach them where? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. What is it talking about here? Okay, it's talking about routine. It's talking about daily life, isn't it? It's talking about all these moments. And and it's saying you're to incorporate the truths of God by showing how he connects and intersects into all of your daily living. It's, It's showing how the values and the virtues of the gospel, how they distinctively influence our decisions and our priorities. Okay, so those are the things that have to be uh, happening in my home. If I, if I care passionately about reproducing and passing my faith down to my kids, and I'll tell you what, if this church becomes the, I don't know, some amazing, amazing church, I already think it's amazing, but if it became more amazing and my kids did not love God or want anything to do with God, in my mind, I failed. And so I care desperately about this. And so what I need to know is it's not going to be regular family lecture times. It, it, it's, it's when I'm waking up. It's the conversations in the car, right? Because we don't walk by the way, right? We're, you know, like maybe some of you walk and that's great. But most of us, we get in a car, right? And, and we drive. And, and, and how many incredible conversations have you had in your car with your kids? And they were unexpected, Right? And, and, and for some of us, the temptation is just they get louder, the music gets louder, right? But, but no, there, it's, it's bringing all of these moments that define the rhythms of our life and asking, how can I teach my kids that the gospel intersects in all of these different places? As I wake up, in fact, I have rearranged my mornings because I was convicted by this. I was convicted how uh, my time with the Lord has always been like my time, and I love getting up super early in that. Uh, But my kids, they don't see that. They hear about it. And so one of the things that I was personally challenged with is, what are they actually seeing? 
Like, what are they seeing in me? Not what am I saying? Not what do they hear when they go to church and that, or not the challenge right before they go to school, but what are they seeing in me? And, and one of the things that I really want to show them is how it is so much more than what I do. Uh, it is so much more than just what I believe. It, it literally is a part of all the decisions as a family we make, the priorities, the whys uh, that we have, all of those things. I am called to show them how the virtues and the values of the gospel are relatable within everything they're going to ever enter into on a daily basis. And then what I love in, in verses 20 through 25 is it tells us that we're to attach these, these doctrines of the faith into God's saving actions in our lives. Now, what is that? Guys, that's your testimony. That's your personal testimony. So, so I'm to pass on to my kids, to my family. Like, I love how, how it's got this picture of, hey, when your son, or, or, or let's say when your daughter asks you uh, about why do we do this, you respond and tell them how God has rescued us. And you guys, when, when you think about the, the, the influence that God has blessed you with, whether you're a parent or not, into a kid's life, and they ask you about why you do this, why do you go to church, why do you read your Bible, why do you pray, why are you telling me to do it? That you are prepared to share from your heart how God has brought you from bondage to freedom. And that you can share that story with them. I love how it highlights that. That, that, that we need to share with our kids the difference that God has made in our lives. And it's not just highlighting to our kids what they need to believe, how they need to behave, but it's, what does a personal experience with God look like? And guys, what's so sad to say is most Christians rely on institutions and this specific type of instruction to pass on their faith. And we think that if we just instruct them as to what true doctrine is and, and shelter them from, from all immoral behavior and, and just involve them into church, then they're going to be great right? A lot of us, honestly, we don't verbalize that, but in our hearts, we're like, yeah, that's kind of what I think. But I'll tell you this. From what I've seen in youth, uh, they are turned off by two things. And we're seeing a decline. We're seeing many youth turning away. One, is they're turned off by a bad example. Amen? How many things are you turned off to just because of a poor example? Doesn't mean you're called to be perfect, right? Yeah, no parent is perfect. We're far from it. But there's an honesty, authenticity, and a genuineness that I can still have in my imperfection as a parent that can, that can cause my kids to see Christ even when I make a mistake or sin or let them down. And so I got to ask, am I, am, am I an example for my kids that's worth following? The second reason I see so many youth turn away is they have not been taught how the Bible connects and relates and is relevant 
to the culture they're in right now. They've been told stories, they've been told doctrine, and they have gone on a lot of entertaining family, youth events. And yet, they still don't know because one of the things that I'm seeing a lot with parents is if we just think, we think that if we just shield them from everything, then they're going to be okay. But you guys, how long can you do that? How long can you do that? In fact, if you think that you can do that, I want you to hang out with me a little bit when I meet with college students. I want you to hang out and hear some of the stories of, of, of some of these college students uh, that have grown up in some of the best environments and they're confused like crazy right now. Because it doesn't equate to just success in, in this perfect relationship with God, right? It, it doesn't. Because, because when I'm just thinking of protect, protect, I'm not teaching them that at some point, and it could be today, it could be tomorrow, they're going to be forced to engage in a world that is contradictory to their faith, and they're going to have to make choices. And, and, and either the Bible is going to be relevant for the moment, or it's going to be this distant, disconnected religion of my parents. And I pray that my kids see how it intersects into their life, into, I, I talked about the confusion, into the confusion. And, and how it speaks and, 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 and calls you out as a child of God and, and empowers you and equips you and gives you all the tools you could ever need to engage with this culture. And so I pray that that, that is the message that is happening. And it's those two clear things, you guys, that I see drawing people away. And I'm going to tell you this right now, you guys, when it comes to, uh, we're all being discipled, right? But when you think of a normal kid's, normal, like there is a normal kid. Um, but when you think of a, a, a kid's overall schedule, what, what does it look like, right? You got like 30 hours uh, at school, right? 30 hours, of some kind of schooling. Uh, and then statistically speaking, 30 hours of uh, social media, screen time, uh, TV, uh, all of that. And then in, in a lot of cases, we have a 45 minute church lesson on Sundays. And we're like, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? And then why, when they get to college and they get challenged for their faith in ways they never challenged before, why do they keep folding? Why do they, because of just intellectual issues, can they not reconcile the God of the Bible anymore? Guys, the stats are astounding. And... Uh, it's really interesting as I was, as I was even reading, I, I read a recent study and, and, and it was just, it was challenging uh, essentially to, to see the parents' engagement and how that, how that carried over. Uh, this particular study found that when both parents were faithful and active in the church, 93% of their children remained faithful. When just one parent was faithful, 73% of their children remained faithful. When neither parent was particularly active in church, only 53% of their children stayed faithful. In those instances where neither parent was active at all and only attended church now and then, the percentage dropped to a mere 6%, which is just crazy. And so you think of the importance, you think about uh, them and reciting Deuteronomy 6 every day and what that was designed to do. It was designed to help equip the very next generation to be passionate about God. And we see that these people turn away from God. And how does God respond as they turn from him and pursue other idols? It says they provoked him to anger. 
And as a result of that anger, the Lord handed them over. What's interesting is he handed them over to the very people they were trying to emulate. And what did the people do? They plundered them, right? They either, they either show up, uh, they, they plunder the people, or they enslave them. And so, you know, I, I go back to this uh, because for most of us, we, we have no idea. In fact, I would say all of us, we have no idea how much God is providing for us and protecting us on a daily basis. We have no idea. There are, there are so many uh, times throughout your day where God is supernaturally protecting you from something that you cannot see or don't even know about. So many times, there's so many conversations, there's so many moments, uh, there's so many people that, that, that he is already preparing you for, uh, he's already set in play what needs to happen, he's protecting you from certain things, from you hearing certain things, seeing certain things, and then he's also, on the other side, providing you with all kinds of things that, that you don't see uh, and, and you don't even know about. And he's at work, and the worst possible thing in my mind that could happen is for me to say, thank you, I, though, want to worship these other gods. I want it my way. And for him to go, okay. And so essentially, he says, okay. You can have that life. You can have what uh, I'm telling you right now. It's, <laughs> and, and, and the very people, they're like, oh, we want to emulate, start to plunder them and start to enslave uh, them. Wow, what a picture of our lives uh, today. And, and so the, this causes the people what? Because it doesn't work out to become greatly distressed, it says. And so they cry out to the Lord. And this is how he responds in verse 16. It says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters, they gave to their sons and they served 
their gods. It's a lot there, but here's what we see in this Old Testament narrative. We see as the people cry out, how does God respond? Guys, you need to hear this because there's just so much grace in God. He responds by raising up these judges. And this is the cycle throughout the book of Judges. He raises up these judges who, who save the people, bring salvation to the people, liberate them. But what? how do the people respond then to the judge after the judge has uh, brought freedom into their life? It says that they didn't listen to the judge's leadership and they decide to turn towards idolatry. And guys, that is the story, right? Of the book of Judges is the people cry out, we need saved. God responds, sends a judge. The people turn from the judge, turn from the Lord, and then they go back into idolatry. And then it's miserable. They cry out, God sends a judge. That is the cycle. The issue though is it continues to get worse. It progressively gets worse as we go through the book. Um, and, 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 and we see though, uh, when, when, when the people are turning to other gods, he literally uses these, these words, just such strong language. He says, you're, you're literally whoring after these other gods, essentially, or, or it might say prostituting themselves in your translation. And what we need to know is that God sees idolatry as adultery. See, he doesn't want us just to know him uh, or obey him or even just like, oh, just follow me. Um, but he wants us to know him and to love him as a wife loves a husband. Like that's the imagery, both in the Old and the New Testament. We see God pictures as, pictured as our bridegroom. And, and so marriage uh, at its core is what? It's to be exclusive. It was this legal covenant uh, commitment, but it also involved what? This deep intimacy, this selfless and sacrificial uh, love. And so that's the image, that's the picture. And they've entered into that covenant with God. And, and so you guys, when you think of God being angry, why is God angry? It's because literally uh, his people, his spouse have, have, have literally said, yeah, we're married to you, but we're actually, you're not enough. We're gonna go and we're gonna worship these other gods and we're gonna enter into these relationships that aren't even gonna be real, aren't ever going to uh, give us the full satisfaction we need, but you're just not enough. If he wasn't mad, we'd have an issue with God, wouldn't we? Right? Guys, his anger is not in opposition to his love. His his anger is an expression of his love. And it shows why he's angry. He loves and cares for them. And so it even brings more light to the grace and the compassion he has that he would even send these judges to them despite their unfaithfulness. But I think one of the things that's really important here for us to see in, in verse 19, it tells us they didn't just turn uh, to this one other God, did they? They were following, it says, many gods. And, and, and why is that important for us? You guys, it is very possible for us to worship many gods at the same time. Um, see, the, the Israelites, what, what they did is they just combined the worship. Like, they're still God's people, right? So they would just combine the worship of the Lord with worshiping all of these other idols. 
And you guys, oh, the paganism that was going on, the pagan worldview at the time was that there were many gods and each of them uh, had a particular area of influence uh, and none of them demanded lordship over every area of your life. Okay, so, so in other words, uh, there would be a, a, a God for battle, a God for uh, love, right? A, a God for, uh, you know, financial blessing, all these things, right? Uh, for my farm, for my crop. And, and so there were gods for all of these things. Whatever you could want or desire, there was a God for it. And those gods were okay with you having other gods. None of those gods claimed to be absolute Lord over everything else. And so paganism allows you to worship as many gods as you want. And the people loved it because essentially what happened is everyone got to pick and choose the kind of gods they needed based upon their interests or based upon their life circumstances. And ultimately, what does that give you? It gives you sovereign, right? It gives you this place of sovereignty over even the gods that you worship. And so it was this mix and match religion that made the worshiper the point. And so paganism can accept all of that, but it cannot accept the exclusive sovereignty of the Lord. He could be one of many. He could even be the most important, but not the one true God. Now, do you guys see how easy that is? or that, that can infiltrate in our lives today. You see that? See, I, I am more and more convinced that the greatest, one of the greatest challenges we're going to have is not me going, all right, I'm done. I'm just going to become an atheist and, and just denounce any belief in God. But I, I, I think this is going to end up being our greatest temptation. Why? Because it's so subtle. See, this is a temptation, uh, this temptation to, to, to worship multiple gods. Uh, this, this, is, this is so dangerous because we don't see it happening. And it, it also, it enables us to still faithfully attend church, read our Bibles, pray, and we can still feel like nothing is wrong. Like, do you see that? That's what's so dangerous about this. See, and, and, and so we, we, we're like, oh, this is okay because I, I believe in him. I worship him. He's a priority in my life. I'm thankful for him. But at the end of the day, you guys, he's sharing space in your heart. And those other things that are in there are ultimately not only occupying space that only he deserves, but they're under the surface pulling you away from him and you don't even see it. And so guys, we have idols all around us. You know what we call them though? We call them our passion. We call them a priority, a pursuit. We call it an opportunity. All of these things that are continually happening in our lives. It can be our marriage. It can be our kids. It can be our schedule. It can be our goals. It can be our desires. It can be our political party. It could be the news outlet that we listen to. Uh, it could be the influencer that we follow. It can be the decision that we have. All of these things creep in. And what's so dangerous for you and I is that 
we can bring them in and still go to church, still feel good, um, but God is no longer exclusive. So, I, I, man, I, I've looked at my life and I go, man, that, that was an idol. Like, that was an idol. I've looked at multiple things and I go, that, that was an idol. And what's so tough about that is I've identified certain things that were an idol in my life and yet they were like, they were good things. And yet I know it had my heart. I look back at, I look back at like uh, sports. I look back at like basketball. I go, basketball was an idol. There was no, like, it's not even close. It was like, that was an idol. I can't justify it at all. I can say all the best things about it. It was an idol in my life. Now, some of you are looking at me like, how? Look at you. But that's okay. That's another story. Um, actually, one of you came up to me. It was hilarious. And, and, uh, and was like, hey, nice to meet you. Man, you're shorter than, uh, than I thought, you know? And it's like, I am. <laughs> so, so I've been buying higher shoes. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But anyway, I, I've, I've looked and I've identified all these things in my life. And, 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 and what's crazy about it is um, I could do all these things and, 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 and there's all these things now in my life. And, and I go, man, these things are, are, some of them are really good. They're productive. And yet they're trying to occupy space in my life that the Lord says, that's mine. That's mine. And I go, I'm just like the people here. And so God says, man, I'm going to judge this in your, in your, in your life. He says, I'm, I'm no longer going to drive them out. Uh, I'm no longer going to push out these nations among you. And, and, and there's even mercy in this because what does he say? He says, listen, I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them in your life ultimately for your good. Even in my discipline, uh, you're going to experience something good. He says, uh, first, he says, I'm going to use uh, them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord. He says, they're going to be around you. And, and one of the things I love about tests, not that you can fail them, but tests, you can also pass them, can't you? And so he says, this is going to be a test for you. And ultimately, it is an opportunity for you to get things right because you are going to be forced to address where you're at with the Lord, is he actually enough? Um, are, are his ways, are, are the wisdom in which he calls you to live with, is that gonna be the thing that wins the day because you have people groups around you working against you? That's a choice. The second is the narrator lists the nations the Lord left and he did this, why? And this can get confusing. He did this only, it says, to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who hadn't had previous battle experience. Why is that? You guys, what he's doing there is he's using these people who are going to go against them. He's using them to develop a dependence upon the Lord. See, uh, when you look at like warfare, uh, the, the people, when they were enslaved in Egypt, Egypt was not like, hey, you guys are slaves. Why don't you just build up your army? Like, no. In fact, that was one of the reasons they enslaved them was they were afraid of him. So Israel didn't have like this huge army coming out of Egypt. Uh, in fact, after they exit Egypt, and then there's the conflict, right, with the Egyptian army, um, how do they fight them? Oh my goodness. Someone online's like, it's the water. Like, they don't, do they? They don't. What does God do? He parts the Red Sea. God fights the battle. Jericho, listen, guys, just walk around. 
Can you do that? Walk around, and you're all going to yell. I've heard you yell at me. Yell for me. Blow the trumpet. Right? Come on. What does God do? He, he delivers. He wins. Right? And so God knew that the enemy warfare was going to be a very real thing. And he knew that in a way that only he knows, that that warfare that they needed to be prepared for was going to train them like nothing else to, for, for the dependency they needed to live with, that the Lord had promised victory and the Lord alone will deliver victory. And so the very test here is an opportunity for uh, them. And so that, that surrounded by these nations, they were, they were literally faced with that constant question, will you obey the Lord? Will you obey the Lord? And, and I guess the question for you and I is, have we ever thought of our enemies or the opposition in our life as opportunities? As opportunities to actually prove that my faith is genuine, to, to learn to depend on the Lord and trust in his uh, victory. And you guys, Israel failed. What do we see here at the end of this? Man, they failed. They, they didn't learn from their suffering, right? They didn't learn from the discipline that God said, this is, actually, this is actually a gift. They didn't learn. How did they not learn? You guys, they gave their most precious commodity, their kids, they gave them over to be husbands and wives to these pagan people groups. That's their response. Literally inviting in the beliefs, the idolatry that they were supposed to drive out. And now they bring them into their families. And now it's intermingled. Now it's unavoidable. And so when facing the reality of war or oppression or all of that, they choose this path of disobedience that leads to defeat. And so, you guys, the challenge to us as God's people today is, can we do the opposite, right? Can we, can we, can we do the opposite? Like 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like that's the goal, right? I pray it is. And so one of the questions, you guys, as we kind of close our time together is, what is really different about your life because Jesus is in it? And, 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 and I don't want you to just give me like, because here's the thing, more and more I'm seeing different religions quote Jesus. And so more and more I am asking myself, how... Uh, how am I being defined? How am I distinctly different to my family, to my kids, to my neighbors, to the people I work with? How is it clear that I am a Jesus follower? How is it clear? And I think that's a great question for us. How am I really different than my neighbors and the ones around me? I've got to answer the question, is he sovereign Lord over my life or is he one of many? Is there a crowd? And I'll tell you this right now, compromise lives in the crowd. What are we doing actively to pass along the gospel?
How are we discipling? How are we raising up the next generation? And maybe it's also asking this question this morning. How does God want to use the opposition or suffering in my life? How? He promises he will. How? Guys, I I can't encourage you enough. He doesn't want a place. He doesn't want a peace. He wants all of your heart. And when you give that to him, there's no comparison. It's transformation. And it's victory. And as we see in Judges, it's peace. It's the peace that you've been looking for. It's freedom. And so if you've never made a decision to receive him as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do that, to declare that to him. If there's things right now that have crowded in, and it's crowded, God's still in front, but it's crowded. I'm going to ask you to really evaluate how it is or what needs to change for God to be it in your life. And so let's just go to him right now. And guys, if, if, if you're here and you're feeling like, oh, I failed, I failed, beaten up, this, this stinks, this isn't right. Guys, every time you see God responding to his people, he sends them salvation. Every time. And so guys, he's here to meet you. He's here to love you. And, and, and in these moments, you guys, this is not this disconnected God who's like trying to pour wrath on you. No, it's a God of compassion who gets into this with you. And he says, let's walk out of this together, okay? Let me really introduce you to what the newness of life is. And so it is a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy and embrace that. He loves you so much. Let's pray.